1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The reading will continue, Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him 
for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is God's word. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let me add my uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. If we've not met, lovely to have you uh, with us this morning. So it's two Corinthians we're looking at. One Corinthians, just a bit of backdrop. Two Corinthians as we're working our way through that letter. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, once again we find ourselves saying thank you for the realism and honesty of your word. Uh, thank you that you treat seriously our greatest needs. And as we come to think again on suffering and acutely upon death, You don't leave us in the dark. You don't leave us without hope. You've spoken, and indeed, in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, acted to address our deepest of needs. So help us. Help us understand. Help us to not lose heart, indeed, to have great confidence in our future for those who are trusting in Jesus. We pray it in his great name. Amen. Now, for most of us, home is a lovely word. Uh, And if it's not, I'm sorry, sometimes it isn't, but for most of us, home, that's a nice word. It has positive connotations. We like going home, particularly if you've um, been away for a long time or or things have gone slightly awry. If you've gone away on supposedly a nice holiday, but on the way back things have gone wrong and there have been delays and lost baggage... And uh, so you arrive back a couple of days after you wanted to, intended to, and you stumble through the door. You think, oh, they're good as well. They're good as well. so delighted to be home. Or even in the short term. Uh, a few weeks ago, cycling home from church one night, half nine, ten o'clock, something like that. And uh, it was raining, much like this morning, that sort of rain. And uh, five minutes in, oh, well, that's not right, is it? Puncture. Oh, oh, <laughs> nothing on me to repair it. Oh, so you just walk home in the rain at 10 o'clock at night, just thinking, oh, poor me. <laughs> and you get in and your socks are soaked and your shoes are soaked and your clothes are soaked. And it's one of those occasions where you remove them by peeling <laughs> and you stand in the kitchen and just throw everything in the it just, But at that moment when you're plodding, you just want to be home. You feel like life has dealt you a bad day that day. And uh, for those of you who arrived and cycled this morning in the rain, I congratulate you. And hope you don't get a puncture uh, on your way home. Home. We sometimes just want to get home and it's, we're cold and we're dreary and we're miserable. We want a shower and we want our bed. We want some food. We want home. Home. We want to go home. And Paul is riding here to Christians looking forward to going home going to be with their Lord in heaven, ultimately to be with him in the new creation, in glory, this world remade, going home to be with him. And the reason he throws this in here, in this letter, is because it helps him keep going now. Because the truths we believe about the future deeply affect, of course, how we live now. Our view of eternity changes everything. And so uh, last week, if you uh, joined us, um, we got as far as, well, we read chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. We said Paul here is really in this letter, most of this letter of 2 Corinthians, really, much of it. He's defending his ministry 
as well as modeling what it should look like for you and for me. So he's defended some into the town of the city of Corinth where he'd planted this church. Some charlatans, bogus teachers have come. And they'll say, look at Paul. His life is hard. He goes to prison. Why would you follow him? He's God. He clearly doesn't have the power of God. It's weak. It's failing. It's suffering. By contrast, they were gleaming and shiny and nothing seemed to go wrong for them. So Paul is writing to defend his ministry, saying it's not unusual. It happens that way. And actually, the power of God is not seen in the avoidance of pain. But the power of God is seen in enduring with thanksgiving. It's really what we thought about last week. So you say, yeah, my life is hard, but I keep going. I keep going. So as he put it, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. That outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now that sounds nice. We talked about these briefly last week. But our troubles now, afflictions, are achieving for us, somehow, an eternal glory. We we thought about this last week, but let me just revisit it, because it matters as we go into this passage. How does that work? How is it that uh, trouble, affliction, hardship now, achieves, produces for us glory? How does that work? Well, it's not automatic, and I think we know that. Suffering doesn't instantly, as soon as life goes wrong, you don't press auto-godliness. And, uh, well, life's going wrong, but hey, I seem to have got a lot more godly. It's not automatic, because you just only have to observe life. And no, as it's often said, when pain and suffering comes, it can make you better, but it can make you bitter. You can go one of two ways. If you're Northern Irish, that's quite hard. Let me repeat that again. Can make you better with an E or bitter with an I. Um, it's a blur. If you're sorry, me. the uh, sorry, Stephen, in particular. Where you gone? But it doesn't automatically happen. So how does this work? Before we get into our section today, verse 17: Our light and momentary troubles occurring now are achieving for us now an eternal glory that outweighs them, be much better then. So, or as we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So if I try and put it in equation form, what Paul is saying, if you have troubles now, and you fix your eyes on here and now, that makes you miserable. Troubles now, Plus, fix your eyes on here and now, you're glum. Troubles now, plus, fix your eyes on things to come, that changes you. That renews you, as he puts it. That is making the Christian long for glory, producing, achieving glory. Do you see how he works? Suffering comes. If you look at your life here and now, and this life is all you've got, it makes you miserable. Of course it does. But if you look up and think, no, I long for heaven, perhaps even more now than I've ever done because of the afflictions of this life. You are more certainly deepening your glory to come. Therefore, he says in verses 5, 1 to 10, you've got to look forward. (laughs) You've got to look forward 
troubles achieve for us a weight of glory as we fix our eyes on things which are not seen, as we fix our eyes upon our future in glory. Chapter 5, verse 1, as we fix upon the fact, our eyes upon the fact we have an eternal house with God in heaven. So if you want your afflictions now to be productive for you, you've got to look forward. If you just look now, you'll be miserable. Hence, he looks forward. It says, for the Christian, well, death is different. It's, well, these three pictures he picks out. Moving to a permanent house, putting on heavenly clothes, and going to the Lord's home. That's what death is like. And you can look forward to all of these three. Just one little uh, other tangent before we get going. Um, Paul here is not arguing, he's not trying to prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place, therefore guaranteeing that of believers. He just assumes that people are with him on that page. That's why we briefly read 1 Corinthians 15. There he's arguing. You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it did take place in history. It is a well-attested by eyewitness event. So he described it in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, on one occasion, 500 people went, you know, saw Jesus risen from the dead. You can go and talk to them. I'm only writing this 20 years later, maximum, probably 20 years later. Most of them are still alive. Go and ask them, he's saying. There is good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just because he'll say in today's reading, things such as we live by faith, not by sight. That isn't Christians base their lives upon make-believe. To live by faith is to trust what God has done, the evidence there is, and the promises he's built upon that. Go and ask those people. He said, no, you and I can't do that. But when people say, oh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just like Robin Hood. No, it is not. Don't, don't accept that. It is not. It is well attested by multiple eyewitnesses. It's historical fact. And I've met a number of people who've said, oh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, load of old nonsense. But I have never met anyone who said that when they've looked. If you look at the evidence, even people who aren't persuaded have said to me, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Yeah, I I see now why you you might... I don't agree with you, but I, I, I see. No one mocks it if you look at it. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, look, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it happened, and it's not optional. If it didn't happen, everything's a waste of time. It happened. And because Jesus died and rose again, he will take believers to be with him. So don't lose heart. This is your future, says Paul. So let's look at that. Three, uh, three pictures, really, I think, dominate the, uh, the passage. For the Christian, then, death is, as I say, moving to a permanent house, putting on heavenly clothes, going to the Lord's home. Let's take them in turn. First, their death is, well, it's moving to a permanent house. Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, Paul is explaining what he means by eternal glory here, or things unseen. It's clearly in context, a new body in heaven. This body, here and now, these bodies, this body, that you, my, you know, you've got one as well, you can't have mine. But this, this body, a tent, he says, compared to the permanent eternal home that we have in glory. Now, these bodies we have, you and I, they're amazing, aren't they? They are amazing. 
so my Osborne Sea Inside the Body, which I borrowed from, uh, uh, from my son this week, tells me that um, the human body can give off enough heat in half an hour to boil a litre of water. There we go, turn off all the heaters and just huddle. Um, every 60 seconds, the red blood cells of the body do a loop, a complete circuit of the body, amazing. When you and I sneeze, it can travel at 100 miles an hour. So please cover your mouth when you... <laughs> amazing, amazing things, yet of course they waste. Of course, they waste away. And things fade, don't they? Taste fades. Our sense of smell fades. As you get older, everyone starts to mumble. It's very annoying. They didn't do it when you were younger, but as they get older, people mumble. Apparently, at the, uh, by the time you reach the age of 60, 40% of women snore and 60% of men snore. On average, it can happen earlier, apparently, as well. But bodies change, and they fade, and they're like a tent, says Paul. It's all right for a few nights. You don't want to be there forever. And the tent of this body, it's good for 70, 80 plus years. Not forever. It's not designed that way. Now, we get that difference, don't we? Uh, for us, we have one notorious uh, holiday in our family where we were camping. We were in Brittany uh, for a couple of weeks on a campsite. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and rained. And of course, rain is, you know, sunshine is cheap on a holiday, rain is expensive, and, you know, Brittany is lovely for food, but there's only so many mussels you can eat. Uh, and uh, when for the third morning running, we went on an outing to the local, local supermarché and just wandered around the aisles, thinking, this is not a great holiday, is it? No. We got back to the cart, it was tipping down with rain, we decided we were going home. Because at least back in the UK, we had a decent swimming pool. Home. Being in a tent, it's all right for a while. But they, well, how does he put it? Chapter 5, verse 1, they are destroyed. Same language, that, or same word that Jesus uses for treasures that the moths get to and destroy. Tents get ragged over time. And we want a permanent home. All he's doing with these, he's just wanting to move our view of death. This life, this body, it's a tent compared to home. So don't panic when it gets a bit ragged. Don't feel distraught. It's not your home. You're going to move to a permanent home at death house. Or second thing, uh, uh, verses 2 to 5. Death for the Christian is, well, it's putting on heavenly clothes. So chapter 5, verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with their heavenly dwelling. Groan here, I think, not in the sense of moaning, 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 but longing, I think, is defining it. Uh, A groaning with longing, verse 2. So you can think of two people in the office at work and, and both groan. But one is a moaner. One moans about his boss and he moans about the work and he moans about everything. The other doesn't moan, but he sits there at his desk looking forward to next week where he's going to, I don't know, the Caribbean. He's not moaning, but inside of him he's yearning, yearning. And that's the sense that Paul is using it here. Meanwhile, we we yearn to be somewhere else. We're longing for our heavenly dwelling. Because, verse 3, we'll not be naked, uh, verse 3, because when we're clothed, we'll not be found naked. While we're in this tent, 
we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. When we die, says Paul, we'll not be found naked. Now, there's, there's some debate over actually what point he's making here. I think probably best understood, he's, he's writing against the culture of Corinth. In Greek thinking, body, bad. Soul, good. So you want to escape your body. So the, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, who's influential at the time, tutor to the uh, Emperor Nero, he said, I hate my body, this clogging burden to which nature has fettered me. I long to escape. And that's a fairly common view. But Paul is saying it's not that when we die, our souls escape and we float around in our, uh, like will-o'-the-wisp in our heavenly negligees, uh, sort, of, sort of vague. It's physical, tangible, not unclothed, new bodies, perfected bodies. The new creation is physical, this world remade. And we long for that. We long for the day when, striking picture, isn't it, when the mortal, what is mortal, our bodies, may be swallowed up by life. It's a great picture, isn't it? Like a, like a crocodile sort of jumping out of a, the river and grabbing a chicken or something. Swallows it up. It's gone. What was there is no longer. Something stronger has come along. And so we, well, we groan with anticipation for the future. We groan for new bodies. Physically. Emotionally. Morally. Of course, these bodies, these new bodies that Paul is speaking of physically, no more sickness, no more illness, no more exhaustion. And of course, amongst us here, there, there, are, there are a number who yearn for their, for their depression to go, for their energy to return, for their bodies to heal. You know, 30% of us will be killed by cancer. We know these things. We long to escape that for a new physical body. Emotionally, no more frustrations, no more resentments, no more suppression of unworthy thoughts. Don't need to do that in these new perfected bodies. Morally, we'll be delighted to follow the Lord. No more battling with sin, no more failure. Paul says this is a body to die for, as it were. I had lunch with a friend this week, he's a pastor as well, uh, and uh, he was describing uh, a girl I know reasonably well, a 20-year-old in his congregation. Uh, she has cystic fibrosis, and uh, despite being 20, has the build of uh, about a 6-, 7-year-old in some ways. Uh, she was never expected to emerge from her teens, but uh, has defied the doctor, she's still going. But death is always six months, a year away, that's what they constantly say. And uh, I said, how's she doing? He laughed and said, well, yeah, still alive. And still the most cheerful person in the church. And, of course, every so often her parents, and she's married, her husband, will get very upset and very tearful. And she'd always say the same thing, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. I'm going home. And don't cry now. I'm with you. Oh, look, I know I'll go. And you'll be sad. And you'll cry. But we'll see one another again because we're going home. So let's not cry, not yet. And she's just full of life and full of smiles. And he says, 
She is extraordinary, really. Or she just believes this. How can she live that way and feel that way? Because, well, because she's fixed her eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. How can she do that? Well, or verse 5 here. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now there are many marks of the spirit's work in the life of a believer, but here is one. You groan. One mark of God being at work in the life of a Christian believer is that they yearn to be in heaven. And Paul says, yeah, I, sometimes I'm in this body and I think, oh, I just want to go home. But I tell you what, that's because that's God's spirit is at work in me. He's placed his spirit as a, a deposit within me. And so I know what is to come and I look forward to it so very, very much. It's such a familiar picture, isn't it? The idea of a deposit. When you want to buy a flat or a house, you put down a deposit, you sign your contracts as a commitment to buy the lot. Once you've got those things signed in a deposit, you know, there's commitment there. Well, here Paul is saying God has placed the deposit. God has signed the contract. God has placed his spirit within the life of a believer, guaranteeing that he will take them to be with him in glory. And so believers groan. They know this world is not home. It's great sometimes. You know, there is, but don't deny, just because Paul is writing this here, of course he could say elsewhere, oh, there's enormous joy in the life of a believer. There's great delight. There's, there's pleasures to be had. Don't listen to people who say it must all be gloom and doom now. No, there's great joy in the Christian life, and yet at the same time, there's, well, there's a yearning to go home. And that's particularly acute in the midst of troubles, of course. So the Christian death is uh, moving to a permanent house. It's putting on heavenly clothes. Third, it's going to the Lord's home. Verse 6. God has put his spirit as a deposit into a believer. Therefore, verse 6, therefore we're always confident. And know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say. And would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore confidence. So Paul could have these two things hand in hand, side by side, a yearning to be with the Lord in glory, but confidence, absolute confidence that that's what's going to happen. He says, well, yeah, I live by faith, not by sight. I can't see the future with my eyes. But living by faith is not blind. I trust that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken place. I built my life on that. I'm looking forward to my future. And I, my preference, you know, is even though this world is great in many ways, my preference, verse 8, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, with Christ, because it will be better then. Home. The best thing about this home is the host. I long to be in his home, says Paul. You can ask, uh, uh, various different age and stage, of course, but for, uh, for a number of young people, you could ask them over the next few weeks, what are you doing for Christmas? And, uh, still people of a student age and into early twenties, they may well say, oh, I'm going home to my parents. And, uh, ooh, home, that's your, you know, they could do these things. But, you know, what do they mean by that? 
I'm going home to my parents. It is the, the latter bit which kind of defines it, isn't it? I'm going home. I take it if you're a, a student, age 19, 20, and your parents have gone on holiday for the month of December, and you go to their house and no heating's on, and there's no food in the cupboard or the fridge, and there's no one there to cook you anything, home is a bit of a damp squib. It's not really home, it's just well, a bigger space to rattle around in. But if you're going home for Christmas, well, that's because you revert to being a child again, and people produce food for you, and it arrives, and there are presents, and it's warm, and the heating's on, and and you get a new jumper and things like that. And, you know, it's home because of the people who are there. It's home because of the host. The host, the house without the host is, well, it's neither here nor there, really. Paul says, I long to be home with him, with the Lord. I want to go to be with Christ. That's home. Because the host is Magnificent and generous, very kind. So for the Christian, death is, well, it's moving to a permanent house, it's putting on heavenly clothes, it's going to the Lord's home to be with him. So I don't lose heart. And as he puts it in verses 9 and 10, so we live to please him. Completely confident of the Lord of the future, we live to please him, verses 9 and 10. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Confident of the future, so we live to please him. Because knowing what the future holds, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't just make you want to escape here and now, but it affects here and now. Uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, our eschatology affects our ethics. Our, our view of eternity affects how we live practically day by day. And so we make it our aim or goal to please him, says Paul. Now what does he mean, verse 10? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what's due to him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Question. Um, Christians are saved by faith, aren't they? Yes. Not by works. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, I, I hope you know that. That's fairly central to Christianity. You know, on Wednesday nights, uh, with a group at the moment, Christianity Explore, people who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians. And, you know, it's a useful diagnostic question. If you appear before the Lord tonight and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And anything that begins with I is going wrong because I have done this, that, and the other. The answer is always, usefully, Jesus. Why should I let you into heaven? Because Jesus died for me. I don't deserve it, but Jesus died to take my sin, to give me his righteousness, and that's how, that's why you should let me in. And the Lord says, quite right, he's died for you. So what does Paul mean in verse 10? We must all appear before the judgment seat, that each may receive what is due for him for what he's done. Well, it's not about our, well, it's not about what, it's not for our salvation. 
Well, let me put you, give it to you. There are two things it could be. Let me give you one briefly. It could be that he's saying that our, that our deeds are a demonstration of our faith. It could be that, I guess. He would say that elsewhere very clearly. You know, the idea, um, how do you know that Wayne Rooney is English? Well, on Tuesday night, he played for England. In fact, he was the captain of the England football team. He wore a white strip. He, he ran in the direction of the England, and, and he scored a goal for England. And when England scored, he cheered and seemed very excited. Uh, everything about that evening would demonstrate he, he's English. He plays for England. Uh, okay. He's English by birth. He didn't choose it. But everything he does demonstrates that he's English. And elsewhere, the, the, the New Testament would say very clearly, Jesus saves us. But how we live just demonstrates that. Everything we do, the way with the pattern we live our life demonstrates that we play for him and not for the opposition, as it were. It could be that, but I think more likely in context, what Paul is stressing here is that there's an evaluation. So we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine our salvation, that's won by Jesus, but our reward is determined by how we live. So if you will, it's not a judgment of destination, but of evaluation. It's an appraisal in that sort of sense. I think in this context, that makes better sense of what he's saying. Or elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3, a similar idea, I think, Paul would say, that on on the day of judgment, when we stand before the Lord, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13, fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss although he himself will be saved. In other words, on the day of judgment, oh, your salvation is absolutely clear if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're saved by faith, and yet what you've done with your life is evaluated. And he says for some Christians, it's just, well, that was a bit of a waste, wasn't it? And for others, it endures, it lasts, in some sense, into the new creation. So Paul says, look, I don't lose heart I know I'm being accused of being feeble and suffering, and yes, I go to prison for what I teach. I know I'm having a hard time. And those guys over there, they seem to have it all very smoothly. I don't lose heart. I know where I'm going. I know that even the trials, the afflictions of this life, they make me look forward to the new creation. I long to be there even more. And so, while I'm here, I live to please the Lord. I know where I'm going. I'm going to my permanent house, not this tent. I'm putting on heavenly clothes, not these rags. I'm going to home to be with my Lord. Therefore, this life, I live to please him. I just make it my aim to do everything I can to please him. Because this life is so very short. The resources, the talents, the abilities, the, ta- the time, the money, the resources, the opportunities the Lord has given me, I use them to please him. Because as Jesus would put it, I long for, well done, good and faithful servant. We live to please him. Because when we're going home, that's all that matters. Home. That's our destination. This world is penultimate. It's not your destination. Death is not the end, says Paul. 
There's a home you're going to. So now, live your life to please him. Afflictions will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it your aim to please him here and now. Because when you're home, it's the only thing that matters. The rest of the journey, who cares? You're going home. Do things that matter, that last. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you give us such a wonderful future to look forward to if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for no uncertainty here. It's uh, guaranteed by the events of his resurrection in history. And thank you for these pictures of a permanent house, better, heavenly clothing, home with you. And so, Father, would we look to those things? Would we fix our eyes not on the things which are seen, but on those things which are unseen? Would you use that to refine us, to grow with it, to renew us here and now? And Father, knowing that we're going home, would we give our lives to please you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.